Uh, I want to tell you, my uh, wife, Paula, uh, she grew up almost around Port Clinton, uh, close to Oak Harbor. She went to Oak Harbor High School. Many Oak Harbor Rockets in here? All right. Two of you. Good. Okay. <laughs> you know where Oak Harbor's at, right? Okay. My wife went to Oak Harbor High School. Her dad was the principal. So that's an interesting dynamic. Thankfully, she was good. If my dad was the principal, I would have been in his office all the time, but not for her. And they're a sports family. And so uh, she has three other siblings. All of them were involved in some sort of sporting event. So her and her family uh, were always at Oak Harbor sporting events. Well, there was also this guy who was there constantly as well. His name was Fuzz. We don't really, we do know his first name, but he refers to himself as Fuzz, and he was at all of the sporting events that he could go to, especially the home sporting events because he didn't drive. And so you always found him at the home Oak Harbor sporting events, cheering on the teams, but most people knew who he was, but didn't know him. And the reason is, is because he was kind of an outcast. Uh, He spoke and you couldn't understand him. He had different mannerisms that made you kind of think he was a little bit different. And in the end, uh, Paula's family found out he, he was a little different. He had some uh, social uh, issues and some physical disabilities. And there were some things there that made him kind of an untouchable person in the Oak Harbor community. Well, one day, Fuzz, he, he mustered up the confidence to go up to somebody and say, Hey, I want to go to the next away game at Oak Harbor, but I can't drive. Will you take me? Well, these people pointed up to Paula's parents who were sitting way up in the corner and said, we won't take you, but go ask Mr. Orshosky up there. He may take you. So he climbs all the way up, and Paula's parents sees him coming, like, what is he about to say right now? And in, in this broken language that he knew how to speak, he basically asked them to take him to the next away game. And Paula's parents, Paul and Tevin, said, okay, we will. And so when the next away game came, they pulled up to his house, and I think he was absolutely surprised that they actually went through with their promise. Because many people didn't show Fuzz love, but they did. And they started taking him to that away game, then the next away game. And then every away game, it was just expected that they would go get Fuzz and then go to the game. Well, come Christmas time, uh, Fuzz had some family, but he was lonely on Christmas. And so Paula's family invited him over. They went to pick him up, and they could tell that he, f- he was freshly shaven, Paula says, because of all the nicks all over his neck. <laughs> He had a button-up shirt. Paula said he sprayed all kinds of cologne on him to make a good impression. And they went to the Orshosky family house, and they were passing out gifts for Christmas, and then they had one extra gift, and they gave it to Fuzz. (laughs) And Fuzz was overwhelmed that this family, who's already taken an interest in him, gave him a Christmas gift. It meant the world to him. It didn't matter what was in the box, but what mattered was someone gave him a gift and responded to him and cared about him. And because of Paula's family investing in him, once they moved on, other people started to invest in him. And then instead of riding with another family, he rode the school bus to the away games. He became like that one fan that everyone was excited to see now. And before he died, about eight or nine years ago, he was inducted into the Oak Harbor Hall of Fame as a fan. It changed everything. He went from this untouchable person who had no status, no worth, Everyone didn't want anything to do with him to this person who was celebrated and loved. His his value, his status, his worth completely changed because of Paula's family investing in him. And what I love about that story isn't just because it's a great inspirational story, but it also reminds me of one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It's about a guy named Mephibosheth. 
Try saying that five times. <laughs> Mephibosheth. He's a guy that when we talk about different Bible characters, he's not in the, the category of the Davids and the Samuels and uh, the Moseses, the Jesuses, the Pauls, the Marys. We're not usually teaching on Mephibosheth from stage, but it's one of the best stories in Scripture. In fact, it's the clearest picture, I believe, in the Old Testament of what Jesus ends up doing for us in the New Testament. It's incredible. And his story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and then chapter 9. But you got to understand, his story doesn't start there. It actually starts in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Mephibosheth's dad is Jonathan. Jonathan's best friend is this guy named David. David becomes King David, king of Israel, but before he is taking on the throne, he and Jonathan established this best friendship. They did everything together. Jonathan loved David, and David loved Jonathan. But there was a problem with their friendship. This guy named King Saul tried to get in the way of that friendship. King Saul was Jonathan's dad, which was Mephibosheth's granddad. King Saul was the king right before David, and King Saul tried to kill David because he was jealous of David. But in that weird dynamic of, hey, my dad wants to kill you kind of thing, <laughs> David and Jonathan, they remained best friends. And Jonathan knew he wouldn't be around forever, knew that David would outlive him because he's chosen to be the king. And so Jonathan asks David to make a pact with him. Make a pact with him saying, whatever happens to me, please take care of my family. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 20 of this pact. He says this, may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But Jonathan says, if I die, David, treat my family with this faithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan, he made this pact with David saying, David, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David affirm again his vow of friendship for Jonathan loved David as himself. Now why, here's why it's a big deal. David, who would eventually uh, succeed King Saul and being Israel's king, normally the person who succeeds the other king goes and kills the previous king's family. And they do that because they don't want the previous king's family to try to take over the throne that this new king has. And so to get rid of the family and the descendants, he would go and kill them. But Jonathan, who knew this, knew that David had the power to do that, said, listen, based on what I'm asking you to do, based on our friendship, please do not kill my family, but honor them as you jump into your kingship as king of Israel. Which leads us to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And we pick that up in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Here's what it says about Mephibosheth. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. And here's how, how that happened. Mephibosheth was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. So here's Mephibosheth's family fighting in battle, and his dad, Jonathan, is killed. And then Saul, who's the king, ends up taking his own life. So here's Mephibosheth. He loses his dad. He loses his granddad. And, and this nurse, this caregiver, knows if they don't get Mephibosheth out of there, he too could be killed. And so the caregiver takes Mephibosheth, tries to run away, drops him, and he becomes crippled or lame. 
And back in that culture, just like it is in our culture, physical disabilities, even in our culture, that's one of the things where sometimes they feel like outcasts, and that's really sad. Well, in that culture, it was worse. For Mephibosheth to be crippled, man, he lost everything. Not just because he was related to Saul and Jonathan, but because of his physical status. So then, at that time, once Mephibosheth grew up, he went out to this desolate place called Lodabar, hundreds upon hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. He once had access to the king. The king was his granddad. Now, he had nothing. No status, no worth. No one wanted anything to do with him. He has this mark of shame on him because he's associated with the previous king's family. And not only that, he has this mark of shame because he's physically disabled. Mephibosheth has nothing. He reminds me of Fuzz. He's one of those people that you see him, you want to put your arm out, you feel bad for him, but you don't really want to do anything for him. Until everything changed for Mephibosheth. And let me tell you something, poor Clinton Chapel family. This isn't Mephibosheth's story. Not just his story. This is our story as well. Let's pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 9. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. David said, listen, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. I actually intend to show kindness to you because, this is important, because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. And I want you to know, I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table Mephibosheth, he's just so overwhelmed. He bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant? And then look how he looks at himself. That you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me. David goes to his servants. He says, look, I know I made a promise to Jonathan. Is there any of Jonathan's kids still living that I can show kindness to them? And Ziba, one of the servants, says, yes, there's Mephibosheth. He lives way out in Lodabar. And David says, I didn't know there was anyone living that was one of Jonathan's descendants. Get him here. So they travel out to Lodabar, hundreds upon hundreds of mile trek. They get to Mephibosheth, and they say, Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. Immediately, Mephibosheth doesn't know about this promise between Jonathan and David. And remember what I told you, the previous king's family was killed. And so here comes all the king's servants, and here's Mephibosheth, crippled, part of the previous king's family. And here he is, and all of a sudden, they said, the king wants to see you. Mephibosheth looks down, he's lame. Why would the king want him? He can't work, he can't serve, he's nothing, and he's part of Saul's family. Surely he's going to be killed. Imagine that days upon days, trek back to Jerusalem, thinking the whole time, I'm going to be killed. I'm done. I'm worthless. And he gets to David, and David says, do not be afraid. Mephibosheth, I want to restore you. I want to give you all of your granddad's things, 
His wealth, his possessions, his servant Ziba ends up serving him. And not only do I want you to live in Jerusalem, be a part of my family, I want you to eat at the king's table. You're not Saul's anymore. You're not known as Mephibosheth anymore. You are known as being part of the royal family now. And here is your place at the table. And for him, everything changed. Now, if you read all of this story in 2, Kings, or 2 Samuel chapter 9, two themes stick out. And one of those themes is one word. It's the word kindness. It's, you see it four times in 2 Samuel 9 alone. And if you're reading the Bible and you see something repeated over and over and over and over again, God is screaming at you that something incredible is happening here. And this word kindness it doesn't mean just being nice to somebody. Here's, how, here's where we see it twice at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 9. David, hey, is, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Or we see a hint at what this really means in, in verse 3. I want to show God's kindness to them. When you and I think of the word kindness, we think people just want to be nice. Yeah, and that, that is part of it. But you know what? This word is pregnant with so much meaning that it changes everything for Mephibosheth, and I'm hoping it changes everything for you and I. You see, this word kindness, translated from Hebrew, is the word hesed. This word hesed, when you translate that into the Greek, we get the English word grace. This word in the Old Testament is a covenantal word. It means Unconditional love, kindness, grace, God's kind of love. David has this gift, and he wants to give this kind of love that changes everything to Mephibosheth. You see, this kind of love helps those of us in this room who have a thirsty, empty soul for something more. This kind of love doesn't know the past. Anyone in here ashamed of their past? This kind of love looks us in the eye and says, what past? I don't know a past. All I know is a future. Wouldn't it be nice to not be known by what we did, but by, by who we can become? Could you imagine if you weren't known by your junk, but you were known by a future? That changes everything. This kind of love gives wholeness to those who are broken. Those who feel shamed in the room, it gives them hope. It gives strength to the weary. It's that kind of love that when you receive it, it changes everything. It's a kind of love that's unconditional. You and I, we don't understand unconditional love. We have love that we want to give people if they deserve it. But if they don't deserve it, what do we do? We withhold it. We are conditional human beings. But not God's love. God's love is unconditional, meaning you can't earn it because if you could earn it, that means you could lose it. But God's love isn't losable. You can't lose that love. You can't forfeit it. You can't unearn it. That's why this kind of said, this kindness, this grace kind of love is a gift. There's only one condition that the giver wants of the gift, that the receiver receives it. And when the receiver receives that kind of love, it changes everything. So you see this word over and over and over and over again from David to Mephibosheth because of Jonathan. 
Without that pact with Jonathan, Mephibosheth is going to be killed just like everybody else. But because of Jonathan, Mephibosheth isn't known as this lame person who doesn't have a future, who will just die in the wilderness. He's brought into the king's court, and he's part of the family. You know what's interesting, though? This kind of love changes everything, but oftentimes, and even when it comes to our relationship with God, we think we have to go find God or earn God's favor or beg God or show God we're, we're worthy of that. Many of us come to church, pray, read the Bible, not because we're loved, but to show God we're worthy of it. That's why we're here. A lot of Christ followers do things out of guilt and obligation because they hope in the end, once they die and they meet Peter at the pearly gates, they let him in based on what they did well. We're the ones always searching for God. We're the, always the ones trying to earn God's love. But here's the difference. Look at this question that David asks in verse 4. If we can put that on the screen here. Where is Mephibosheth? Not, hey, you tell Mephibosheth to come here and prove why he should be a part of my family. He says, where is he? I need to find him. Go find him and bring him to me so I can give him kindness, so I can give him worth and status, so he has a future. He's not marked by his lameness. He's not marked by Saul's family. He's marked by me now. All Mephibosheth has to do is show up, put his hands out, and receive this from the person who can literally change everything for him. Just like Paul's family changed Fuzz's status simply by going along with them. What I love about this story, it's not just David honoring Jonathan and Mephibosheth receives that love. It is our story in Christ. Do we understand that? All of us in here are Mephibosheth. All of us are broken. All of us are lame. All of us are crippled. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, spiritually. We've all done things wrong. In fact, we find ourselves, if God is here, we find ourselves way over here. We've run away from God. We've damaged people. We've hurt God. We've doubted God. We've turned away. We've done so many things that God should never, ever bring us into his presence. And if it really was that kind of love where we had to earn, we would understand, of course, I have to do something to show God I'm worthy. But you know how David says, because of Jonathan, Mephibosheth now has a chance? Do you know God the Father says, because of Jesus, Eric has a chance? Because of Jesus, you and I have a chance. We're way out here, and God tells Jesus, go find Eric. Go find you. Yeah, you may make a mess of your life. You may have a past. You may have done all these things wrong and you're way out there and you're crippled and you're lame and you don't deserve it. And all Jesus is saying is, where is he? Where are you? Because of what Christ has done on the cross and then through the resurrection, no matter what you've done, it's forgiven. We're not known by who we were. We're known by who God is through Christ. He brings us to the table, and he has a seat ready for us right at the table. All we have to do is take a seat. You don't have to do anything else but to receive Christ's love that he's given to us. Now, I wish it was that easy, but many of us came in this room limping 
crippled, shameful. All of us think we have to walk into church and smile and make sure everything's okay. No, 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 no. That's not real life. Do you just smile and act happy all the time when no one's looking? Some of you probably do. Well, I want your life. That's not real life. Real life is when people can't see who we really are, and if they were to open us up, they would see a man or a woman who's crippled by addiction, by our past, by adultery, by our disgusting thoughts, by our anger, by the way we abuse money, by the way we abuse others. We look at ourselves and we say, why would the king want me? I'm overweight, I'm anorexic, I cheated on my spouse, I'm a jerk to my kids. I'm single. I'm a mess. And many of us are like Mephibosheth. Once we hear God's calling in our lives, we think it's got to be too good to be true because you don't understand. I I deserve to be over here. I'm crippled. I'm lame. I'm broken. And God says to us, listen, this isn't your table. This is mine. I make the qualifications who has a seat. One author says that we're invited to the table and God's tablecloth covers up our crippledness. That's grace. That's loving kindness. That's unconditional love. It's not about who you are. It's about whose you are. Can you imagine having a place at the table? You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn it. It's just given to you. And you come up and it just changes everything. When I fast forward to the New Testament, I see Jesus saying the same thing about a table. He says, someday, Christ followers, you're going to be at the table, and I'm not going to be there anymore. But that place at the table that's marked Eric Lapata, that's there for you. You're going to come to my table, and you're going to limp to my table because of the things you did last night, because of the things you've done in the past, because of who you are. You're going to limp to that table, but once you get to the table, I want you to know you belong. And the way I will show you that is to remind you of the broken body of Christ and the spilled out blood that he gave so that you and I have a permanent seat at the table here and indeed to eternity. 